Well, good morning. So a week ago, on a Wednesday, I was at this place called Block, which, thank you, first and foremost, to those of you who contributed backpacks to children and youth that attend this Block after school program, because there are some different students who didn't have the backpacks and the school stuff that they needed to go um, into this school year, and they were reusing maybe older brothers, older sisters stuff, and and the request from the director at the after-school program was, can you bring backpacks, can you bring some school supplies, and also can you bring a back-to-school activity? So we did our best, and we brought this game called Knockerball, where you put a giant bubble over you, and then you run into people, and that is always a fun game when you see it being played in the middle of a street in Price Hill, right? So to paint this picture, this particular block house, there's a there's a corner store, and then there are two houses that the ministry owns that they use for after-school programming. And just behind the corner store is this notoriously famous house that deals in anything illegal that you want to purchase. And so there's a lot of traffic that goes in and out of this house, grabbing different things that will allow you to see the world through some inhibited eyes. So what you have are really high people walking out, watching kids hit each other in these giant bubbles. And so they're congregating across the street because they think it's, it's, like it's really helping their high out a lot because they're watching bubbles hit each other and then roll across the street. And there's this community that starts to gather and then even some of the adults want to get involved. And it's humorous. It's fun. It's interesting because what you had just participated in or where you came from didn't matter as much as what you were willing to do right then. And it was this, it's this wild space where six-year-olds are laughing and 30-year-olds are laughing too and starting to talk and open up and share. And there's just all different aspects of life happening at once. And in our brains as the leaders, we're both trying to protect children from whatever's happening in this space, and yet be community and be neighborly and be fully engaged because that is the tension that is a kingdom that is both in this world and not of this world, is that it's not the objective to protect everyone around us from what is happening in the world, but to figure out how to engage in kingdom while we're in a world that doesn't make a lot of sense. And I find that every week that I show up in this space at at this after-school program, I come face-to-face with what Jesus must be dealing with in my life on a regular basis. There's the tension in the space of the, are you going to go and satisfy yourself by buying the quick fix? And then the beauty of, or do you just want to come to me with your childlike faith and just run into each other with bubbles? And that's me, that's my space on a daily basis of the tension of self-provision or do I want to numb myself or do I want to run away from reality or do I just want to play and have fun? And it happens on this corner every week. The week after we did the back to school party, the atmosphere was a little bit different because it rained. And when you have an after school program in this urban space, it's really difficult when it rains because the space is small Everything is concrete, the ceilings are concrete, the walls are concrete, the floor is wood. So if you're in the room, it's just noise, just banging everywhere. So the kids still want to be outside even though it's raining. So Wednesday comes and we're outside and we're trying to play basketball and it's starting to drizzle a little bit. And then this torrential downpour just 
pits and everyone just flees, right? So half go into the blockhouse. The other half go onto a porch of someone who, who works for block. And I'm standing on the porch with a couple of, of the students and then a couple of leaders. And there's this one boy standing next to me. And his name is CJ. And CJ has only been there twice. The first week he was there was the backpack week. And he's standing next to me and he's looking and, and he's just being just a translator of everything that's happening. He's like, it's raining. Yeah. It's raining hard. Uh Uh-huh. Those people are in the rain. Indeed. What's that girl doing? And all of a sudden, he looks and he sees this girl walk out of the blockhouse. And she's this 12-year-old girl that I call my daughter. And it's raining. And I see her come out of this space of warmth and dryness to run to the car in what I believe is an effort to get her raincoat out of the car to go back into the space just in case. Youth is amazing, right? So I'm standing on the porch. She's running to the car, and CJ's like, isn't that your daughter? And I'm like, yeah. I wonder what she's doing. And he's like, looks like she's getting wet. CJ's awesome, right? He's brilliant. (laughs) Indeed. And so as she gets to the car, I think, great moment to be an amazing dad. I'll set the car alarm off. So she jumps in the car, moment of wisdom for her, jumps in the car to get her jacket so that she doesn't get wet. And as she gets into the car, I decide, let's just hit the alarm button. So as the alarm on the car goes off, and everyone on the porch is having a little laughter because she looks at me in that perfect 12-year-old face of like, Dad, I'm going to kill you later. And she may have actually mouthed those words. What are you doing to me right now? And the alarm's going off, and it may have been 45 seconds that this alarm is going off. Maybe I'll let it go a minute. And I look down at my little fob to turn the alarm off, and I hear a door. And the rain has just, like, tripled in intensity at this point. I mean, it's just pounding. And I hear a door, and I look up, and CJ says, she's getting out. Why is she getting out? And in the moment of overwhelming, I'm not sure what to do in a car whose alarm is going off, and embarrassment, Sonny's response is to jump out of the car back into the torrential rain where she did not find her coat in the car and to slam the door and look at me and go, what are you doing? And I'm like, what are you doing? You're getting soaked right now. And I turn the alarm off and she runs back into the block building and then rain stops. She comes over and she's like, I am wet. And CJ's response is, it's because you decided to run in the rain. CJ's maybe seven. Sonny's 12. Sometimes wisdom doesn't have an age on it. Sometimes wisdom is more seen from the person who's watching something happen than the one who's experiencing it themselves. Often we find ourselves very wise when we're watching someone else stand in the rain. Often we find ourselves very wise when we see someone else freaking out over the alarm going off. But then our alarm goes off. Then it rains on us. And we find that we're not very wise. We're in the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. We get to wrap this book up. So all of the meaninglessness goes away. 
today. If you have a Bible in front of you or you want to grab one, we're in Ecclesiastes 11 and 12 to wrap it up. If, to get all the way through, we have two chapters. We're just barely going to touch on 11, and we're going to dive into the last part of 12 as we finish. But if you haven't been here for the entire series, it doesn't matter because the writer of Ecclesiastes says it's all just meaningless. Every sermon that we've spoken this series has been this dance with the meaninglessness of life and the longing for something more. Each one of us, whether it was Steve or Kelly or Seth or myself, have found it impossible to actually just teach the text of Ecclesiastes because we've been longing for something more. We needed to find meaning. We've been drawing Jesus into every sermon that we've taught in some way because the meaninglessness of life without something that is forever is just too much to fathom or think of And even as speakers, we've struggled to leave you with a word each week that's just like, it doesn't matter. Come back if you want to. Don't. Eat if you want to. Don't. Have friends. Don't. Without anything beyond what the writer says, beyond the sun, it all just doesn't matter in the end. It all struggles. You might have noticed it this weekend. We're back, right? College football. We're back. Which means what? All of the other college football games that have ever existed in the past don't mean anything until this next one. Because we don't find meaning. And then we'll get to the end of the season, and if our team doesn't make it, there's always next year, right? None of this mattered either. We struggle with meaning in the context of anything without Jesus because we're built to long for something more and something eternal. And that's the landing of the writer. Here's my homework for you. It's to read chapter 11 and to process through it in your own space with these two themes, right? Because I'm going to skip through 11 and go straight to 12. The first section of chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes from verses 1 through 6, here's the theme. Do what you dream. So here's the homework. What are some dreams that you have had that you haven't done anything about? Because if everything in the past is meaningless, it doesn't matter that you haven't started it yet. Go ahead and start it. You have the freedom to do what you've been dreaming because whatever you haven't done hasn't defined you. Whatever you have done hasn't defined you. So whatever you want to do, you're invited freely to do that. That's the overview of what the teacher says in this first section, is that we have dreams and we have things that we do. And when we do the things that we dream, we have no idea how it's going to turn out. So some of the greatest dreams that we have, we could do those and finish them and not be fully satisfied, and it's okay. We did it. And we have other dreams that seem simple and small and seem like a phone call or it seems like a text message or just a little bit of encouragement and it turns into this significant moment for someone else. Why? Because we did what we dreamt. Some of the smallest things in the world can turn into the most influential. And some of the largest dreams that you have could be unsatisfying. The only way to know the difference is to actually try them both. So the beginning part, he says, do what you dream. In the second part of chapter 11, it's to remember your creator, remember God in your youth. This is a very young church. There are two sides to this conversation, right? There's the, there's the am I on my last run side of this journey of saying, am I too old to believe this section is for me or am I young enough to keep going? And what I find is every year I get older, I keep seeing myself as younger, 
right? I feel like I'm a younger 39 than my dad was when he was 39. I don't know if you ever thought about that. I felt like a younger 20-year-old than I, like, I looked at my parents and I was like, oh, wow, you had two kids by the time you were 20. I did not. Huh, I'm younger than you. I'm more spry than you. I spend my Tuesdays with youth in Cincinnati playing basketball. It's hard to feel young when you're playing basketball with 17 and 16-year-olds at 39. My knees will remind me that you're not 16 anymore and you need the right shoes for this. But we feel younger at times, but then there's a spot where some of us will feel at a place where we feel too old to participate or too old to navigate or that's for the kids. And that, that was a space I lived in as a youth minister. There were constantly men and women who would refuse to participate in mentoring and discipling youth because they would say, I can't keep up with them anymore. And I'm like, no one's asking you to. We're just asking you to be present and slow them down because they're probably running too fast. They're probably jumping out of the car in the rain. And maybe if you were sitting with them, you could have locked the doors. So sometimes we look at this second passage and believe that our youth has passed us. And I don't believe that's this church. I would actually challenge this church for us to think that we would bring God into our youth. And with the time that we have left, that we would look at there to be as much meaning in the simple things that we do this afternoon or tomorrow or the next day as there was in all the things that we forgot to do in the past or that we don't believe we're strong enough or capable enough or have the resources enough to do in the future. What if we just looked at today and said, I'm still breathing, I'm still active, I still have dreams, I can still connect to people, I can still do adventurous things, I should just try one. And it says in this passage to remember the creator in that space. So it's not just I should adventure, but I should adventure on behalf of the creator of the universe. Because at some point, I might not be able to. And that's where the teacher takes us in chapter 12. He starts in verse 1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. He's restating what he said in chapter 11. Before the days of trouble come. I saw an interesting statement this month on whether or not to call boomers like elderly now or senior citizens, like there's a debate as to what do we call them because they seem to be more active than others in their generations. And I'm like, the ones on the verge of trouble coming, right? Because that's what he says right there. When you're on the verge of trouble coming, and what the teacher is saying is you're on the verge of not being able to handle all of this life yourself. There's something happening, and here's what he means by it. He goes into some details. He says, the years will approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in being here. I hate this place, right? Anyone ever met one of those friends that are just like, this world is stupid. I want out. Like, this is dumb. Everybody's dumb. The world is dumb. I'm done with it. And he says, and this is what, how you'll know that you find no pleasure in it. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark. What he's meaning is before your mind goes, right? It starts to get dim up here. And before the mind it starts to go dark, that's when it starts to leave and it's too late. Then it says, and the clouds return after the rain. When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, our backs start to hunch over. We get shorter. My boss at back to back told me the other day, he's like, I've shrunk an inch. I'm like, you're old enough to, to decide, like you're sizing yourself to see if you're shrinking. And he's like, yeah, what's happened to us? I'm like, don't, no, there is no us right here. I am not ever going to check my height ever again. 
I have no interest in that. And the grinders cease because they are few, right? Grinders, those are teeth. We've lost our teeth, and they cease to work because they are few. For those looking through windows grow dim. Our eyes are going when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades. I can't hear. I can't see. My back hurts. When men are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along and no desire and desire no longer is stirred. It's very interesting if this is Solomon that he says, you can have my mind, then you can take my back, then you can have my eyes, my ears are good, and the last thing to go for me is my interest in the bedroom. Let's move on. Then man goes to his eternal home, and mourners go about the streets. This is it. This is the end. And so he says, anything before that is youth, right? Like, so that's what he's actually telling us. Anything before the mind is dim, the grinders are going, the back is stooped, anything before that is youth. Because so many times you see someone older than you and go, well, I'm not great, but I'm better than that. Your youth is defined by how you approach God's kingdom in the context of life under the sun not by how how old you are and what you have left. But this teacher is motivating us saying, but there is going to come a time when you don't have anything left. There's going to come a time. Don't let your life be filled with the almost and the not yets and the forgotten because there's going to be a moment where your voice has left you. You can't see the beautiful things in this world anymore. And that adventuring is over. And he says, remember him for the silver cord is severed. That's your spine, right? So this is, it's a beautiful language that he's using here. Your, your silver cord is severed. Your spine is broken. The golden bowl is broken. Your head is broken. The pitcher is shattered at the spring. That would be your heart is broken. Or the wheel is broken at the well. And that's like just blood flow through your body. And the dust returns to the ground it came from. And this is the most important part of this first section. It says, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. We often forget that our spirit was entrusted to us and that we don't own it. It's actually the property of someone else. It has belonged to him since he spoke us into existence out of dust. And he says, all of these things I'm willing to let go. I'll let your teeth go. I'll let your mind go. I'll let your body go. I will let all of these things that are meaningless under the sun go. Because there's a part of you. There's a spirit inside of you that belongs to me. And I'm going to ask for that to return. I want it back. I want your spirit to dwell with me forever. So know that you are entrusted as stewards of the spirit that God has placed in you your life is not just your own he's going to ask for it back he wants it to return to him and to dwell with him forever meaningless meaningless says the teacher everything is meaningless and then he concludes and he gives us thankfully for me I love story so he gives us characters in the end He says, not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. So the first character in the end of this whole 
story that we're brought back to is the teacher. We actually started in Ecclesiastes 1 where it is the teacher assembled the people. And then at the end we have, and this is what the teacher did. And you could read this end and some commentaries have actually kind of written a Gilderoy Lockhart personality on this teacher in this space of like this guy who experienced all the nothingness and had all of these wrong answers but he has this arrogance and then he's speaking to you at the end of like oh the writer has given you all of this and it's out of pride that he has spoken into you all of these things of meaninglessness and that it's actually foolishness that he hasn't figured it out and that he hasn't fully practiced it and if you asked him to wave his wand and perform a spell he would actually do the wrong thing and confund himself. But he's probably more of a Dumbledore in this thing. For those of you who like, everyone went back to Hogwarts yesterday. I don't know if you knew this. September 1st. So the fact that we're here means something bad for us. Like we're muggles. So it's more this character, if you're familiar with that storyline of the one who is confident in his wisdom but his objective is more to put you out there so that you can experience it for yourself instead of this teacher who says let me just tell you all of it and I'll experience it on my own and I'll tell you my stories instead this is more the teacher that says come let me teach you by the way we experience life together because I have worked really hard And making sure I craft the words of wisdom that I give to you. Because they're the ones that you need in order to do the work on behalf of the Lord that you've been called to. These experiences are crafted for you so that you can experience the work that you are called to do. And that's what he's saying in this first section is that he toiled and thought through each word that he would write. Think for a minute. Do we know anything about Solomon's relationship with his thousand women? Not really. We don't really know a whole lot about how much the temple and the creation of that weighed on him or how easy it was for him. But churches for centuries have stewed on the wisdom sayings that Solomon left for us. Because he took so much intention to make sure that the words that he gave were words that could be lived out. His legacy was not the temple that he built. You can't even go worship in that thing. It wasn't even the children that he had. A lot of them were a mess. It was the wisdom that he gave to teach and to train whoever was coming next and wanted to take up the story And so he says in these first verses, I give you these words intentionally. And the question that I had to ask myself in this first section, and I ask you, is are you playing the role of teacher? Or are you playing the role of teller with people around you? Because teachers stew over the words that the people around them need to hear so that it's the word that is built on truth, that it is the one that is searched out. Tellers tell about our experience and then we write that onto someone else's story. Are you teaching or are you telling? Because there's an invitation to each of us to teach instead of just telling. It says in verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads, 
And they're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails in here. I love these two illustrations that are given here. A goad. It's a staff with like an iron on the end that was used to guide and navigate oxen while plowing in a field, right? I know you saw one the other day, right? Like it's just driving down 71 and some guy's got a goad out with his oxen. Best part of a goad in the story of God is that in Judges chapter 3, Shamgar uses one of these and kills 600 Philistines to save Israel. That's all he gets. He gets 24 words in the entire story of God, and it says, Shamgar took an ox goad and killed 600 Philistines, and he too saved Israel. That's all we get. We have Ehud the left-handed, who stabs a guy on a toilet, and then we have Deborah and Barak. We've got, you know, like we got tent peg to the head, and in between, we have a goad. It's a really cool story. I know. I'm like, I want one now, Right? And there's this idea, though, that Shamgar would have been out in his field plowing and navigating the oxen through the field when these Philistines were coming to attack Israel, and then he just went like crazy on these guys and got 600 of them himself. That's an, we should write that movie. Like, that's awesome stuff. But the idea for the ox goad would be that the man with the plow would use it to nudge and to nurture the oxen to stay on the path that they needed to stay in order to turn up what needed to be turned up, right? The objective was not the oxen. The objective was what the plow was doing. And so when he says wisdom is like an ox goad, it is like this thing that's going to nurture you in the direction that you need to go so that you can turn up the soil in your life that needs to be turned up so that it could produce fruit. Because if you've ever tried to plant anything on an unplowed soil, it doesn't work. And if you skip spots in the soil and the plowing goes all around, then you end up with these spots of hardened ground. Think about your life in that. The places that you allow wisdom and truth to nurture you forward bring health and relationship and stir up the things that need to change. The places that we don't allow for correction the places that we don't allow for provocation, they stay hard and rigid and firm and nothing grows there. And it's a desert in our life. The teacher says, a good teacher nurtures like a goad so that it stirs up the right things. And then he says, it also is like firmly embedded nails, like the truth is like a firmly embedded nail. You've probably seen a loose nail. If you have hardwood floors, you notice that in your house, that when there is a nail that loose, it is loose, it begins to creak, and you begin to wonder, is the floor safe, and why is it that making a noise? But a firmly embedded nail keeps everything where it's supposed to be, and it keeps the stuff inside that's not supposed to get outside. It says that wisdom is this nail in our lives that firms up what we're supposed to be and what's supposed to be going on inside. And then he says, these both, the goad 
and the nails are given by one shepherd. This is a writer, a teacher who has not met Jesus. And he has no idea that in John 10, 11, Jesus is going to say, I am the good shepherd. I am the one shepherd, he then says in verse 16. Like, this is amazing because the writer is saying, there's only one. His name is God. And Jesus later says, yes, there is only one. And I am him. I am the one who will nurture you on the path that is straight. I am the one who will nail this together and keep the things inside. Mine will be the most firm. And he says, be warned, my son, anything in addition to them is not good. If it's not from the good shepherd, it's not a good goad. If it's not from the good shepherd, it's not a firm nail. And then he concludes, he said, of making many books, there is no end. And of much study wearies the body. And then in the last two verses, now all has been heard. I've said it all, he says. Here is the conclusion of the matter. This is it. If there's one statement, this is it. The whole book is about this. Fear God and keep his commandments. Back to the Shema. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Everything on this earth is meaningless without a reverence to God. It's what, it, it's what the teacher is saying. Fear here is this eternal reverence, this understanding that I have been given here for a, a short time, but I'm returning back to the one who created me to either be pleased in his presence or be sent away from his presence because he knows everything that I have done in public and that I have done in secret. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 12, like, I am the resurrection and the life because everything that has been done in public and in secret, I will bring back to life so that you can continue to revere God and keep his commandments. There's a a community that's happening in this story between the teacher and the shepherd. The teacher is saying, I can bring anyone to a place of understanding how meaningless their life is. But I can bring no one to a joy of understanding how much meaning there is life beyond the sun. Only the shepherd can do that. Wise sayings around us can remind us of how worthless our life is, how frustrating, how much more other people have. But the teacher is saying there's only one. There's a shepherd, and everything belongs to him. And he will navigate people to understand that their spirit returns to him, and that their story is his now. Who is teaching you, and who are you teaching? And are you taking them to the shepherd? It's the question that this teacher has for us. So CJ, this cool little kid, sees it rain, And he sees that while I had a really good time setting an alarm off for my little girl, 
that in the chaos of her jumping into the rain, I had not only unlocked the door so that she could get out, which I should have just kept it locked, I had also popped the trunk on the car. And I look and I'm like, oh no, I popped the trunk in the middle of the rain. Like, my bad. And CJ doesn't even ask. He just looks at me and he was like, oh, I see it. Jumps the porch, like doesn't climb the steps, jumps the porch, runs across through the rain, in one hand slams the trunk closed and then goes back into the other room. And I'm like, dude, that kid's awesome. And it stops raining and I walk into the other room and my friend Ryan, who runs Block, introduces me to CJ's brother, Antoine. And he says, would you meet with me and CJ and Antoine because they've never been to Block before. This is their first time, and I want to let them know what the like, expectations are. Cool. So we sit down, and CJ's like, that stuff was really funny. <laughs> like, yes, it was. What's going on in your life? So CJ and Antoine start to tell us about some really painful things that are going on around them, some things that are causing them to struggle in school. And then both Ryan and I look. And Ryan says in his wisdom, he says, we don't care what's going on around you. We just want you to know that here at Block, it's a safe place for you to learn who God is, for you to be accepted for who you are, and for you to figure things out. And I follow him up and just say, how, like, how does that strike you? And Antoine was like, nobody gives us a chance. No one understands us. And then he turns it personal and he says, my job is to take care of my brother. I'm here because my grandma sent us here and so I'm here to take care of him and make sure nothing bad happens to him. So then he gives us the warning, right? If anything bad here happens to CJ, just know I'm going off on everybody. And we're like, okay, Antoine, we got you. We hear you. And I'm not sure why, but in that moment, my response is, I hear you, Antoine. What do you need? And his answer I just started school and I don't have a backpack or any school supplies to take with me. Like That's very interesting because some of my friends just brought a bunch of those. Would you like to go in this room and pick a backpack out? And he looks up and he doesn't answer yes. He looks at me and says, I think I know where you're going with this. Like, Antoine, where am I going with this? God loves us, and he's here for us, and this is a safe place for us. Yeah, that's exactly where I'm going with this. He's like, cool, can I pick out my backpack? And he walks into the room, and he picks his backpack off, and for two weeks, he hasn't taken the backpack off. We, Ryan and I, get to be teachers and nurture some conversation. Somehow in the middle of that, the good shepherd just met Antoine right there and said, hey, the story's about me and you and that spirit that I put inside of you. I don't know what you're looking for this week. I don't know what you've struggled with this week. I don't know how old you feel today. But the good shepherd, he's still looking for us. And he's still here to just navigate us to turn up the right things, and to nail back together anything that's been broken. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Ecclesiastes. Thank you for this maddeningly hard book that overwhelmingly 
moves me toward seeing meaninglessness in everything I do. But thank you in the end for reminding me that you and your commandments are all that matter. Thank you for this church. How it just moves forward and pursues you. And I pray for any of us in this room who need to come back to you as good shepherd this morning. That we would simply confess your name. Sue you that we pray. Amen.